he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. get me a gay mickey gotta get a gay well hello and welcome to another episode of in the details a celebration of nuance where uh nowadays uh each week i clean out on all the acting choices micro moments and magic and minutiae that make a scene great my name is colin drucker your name let me check yep still barbara bell gettys and this week two things we're going to talk about somewhat relevant i mean a we need to do a broad church update B, we're going to zoom in on a little Fosse Verdon this week. And I should let you know right away that what I, what I should probably, what I should be focusing on when it comes to Fosse Verdon, what I only really want to talk about ever at all, if I'm not talking about Tony Collette in Hereditary, is Michelle Williams and Fosse Verdon. I mean, and I come at this, by the way, as someone who doesn't have like an extensive knowledge of musical theater. Didn't really, I mean, I knew the name Gwen Verdon and that I knew that she and Cheetah Rivera were in the original production of Chicago because I knew like, you know, three things about Chicago. But so I didn't come into it like, oh, okay, I, I, I know this is an accurate representation of Gwen Verdon or I know this is an accurate representation of what happened. I hadn't even seen all that jazz, which was kind of like the pre Fosse Verdon, Fosse Verdon directed by Bob Fosse, I believe. I think it's, uh, I don't know anything about it. Here I am trying to talk about something I know almost nothing about. Point being, I didn't come into this having like this deep knowledge of what I was getting into. I, but I knew enough, and I feel like my question going into Fosse Verdon, if you haven't seen it, is like, how interested in musical theater do you need to be to be into Fosse Verdon? Because there's other stuff I've seen, you know, like Broadchurch, which as I said, we're going to talk about in a second. I'm not necessarily fluent in um crimes in the united kingdom but uh I'm, I'm down to watch three seasons about it so yeah so i didn't come into this kind of like with an expectation of you know is michelle williams gonna nail it or not it was more about like let's see what she's gonna do so what i've heard from other people and what i found from my own let's be honest shallow research is that yeah she's totally nailing gwen verdon like she the the, the impersonation is solid and if that was the only assignment for the, for Fosse Verdon, A+. Plus. But I think what I love most about Michelle Williams in Fosse Verdon is what I love about Tony Collette in Hereditary and what I love about Drew Barrymore in the HBO version of Grey Gardens. I love seeing an actor just working overtime every single step of the way. I, that's how I felt watching Grey Gardens uh, with Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange. Jessica Lange is great as Big Edie Beale, but you're kind of like, well, yeah, it's Jessica Lange. I kind of kind of saw her knocking one, this one out of the park, you know. But Drew Barrymore, you're like, I mean, you know her from Never Been Kissed, you know what I mean? Or from, from something that isn't as weighty as Grey Gardens. And I think it's kind of similar with Fosse Verdon. I feel like no matter what Michelle Williams does... Manchester by the what? Oh, you mean Dawson's Creek? Manchester by the Creek? Um, is it a sequel? You know, I, I, people will always kind of go back to Dawson's Creek as like the reference point for her. And I, I think after this, I mean, 
this is being recorded before the Emmys, uh, for the Emmy winners are announced, before Michelle Williams hopefully claims her Emmy for this performance. But I hope after this that she sort of launched into a new light. I mean, my, what was it, my life with Marilyn? Shoot, that was like the big moment for her at one point. And I don't know, what's it, what, what's it going to take to get off that creek, you know? Uh, I mean, what's her name? Katie Holmes, she married Tom Cruise. So now we know her for that. You know, that's what you have to do to like shake Dawson's Creek off of your uh, public persona. I think James Vanderbeek just kind of like leaned in. So, uh, and Joshua Jackson, well, who cares? Uh, anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. What I do want to say is, while I love Michelle Williams, and we will obviously highlight some nuances that I love about her in Fosse Verdon, we're just going to zoom in on one scene, which is from the seventh episode of the season nowadays. And it is, of course, the scene where Gwen and Kander and Ebb are presenting the song nowadays to Bob Fosse to be included as the final song in Chicago. And it's, I think it's the best scene in the entire miniseries, whatever you want to call it. But while it is an amazing moment for her, and there's a couple amazing moments, what I really want to zoom in on is Cheetah Rivera in this scene. I, as you know from the title of this episode, Cheetah in the Middle, I'm so fascinated by how they tell the story of Cheetah Rivera in the middle of this conflict, which even if you don't have like some deep historical knowledge of musical theater, you kind of know contextually that the idea of including the song, the idea of it being her song, the idea of Cheetah, you know, being given part of that song, part of that song being taken away from Gwen. Like there's so much more meaning, you know, to that. Like there's, there's all this iceberg underneath what's happening in this moment. And I think what's really fascinating is watching Cheetah's story. I mean, she, she has only a few lines in the scene, but she is, in some ways, this is really, this conflict centers around her. And I think the way that the scene is staged, I think so many of the shots, like the ways that we kind of get to see her reactions in the, for, in the background while they're having this conflict, it's, watching it again, it's, it's like just as fascinating and there's just as much story there for Cheetah as there is for Gwen and Bob. And she's doing it with like so much less. And I feel in some ways, I was just having this conversation with someone the other day and I, I'll spare you the details because it's a spoiler for a larger piece of news that's coming down the line. But, uh, we were talking about sort of like quintessential performances, quintessential examples of things, quintessential examples of like a best supporting actress, you know, like what's the quintessential best supporting actress uh, performance and what does that mean? What does it mean to be the best supporting actress in a scene or in a movie? And uh, I think that in this moment, I really think that's what Cheetah Rivera is. I think that she is someone who is caught in the middle. She's someone who's not a central part of the conflict, but is involved in some way. She's someone who's adding a different perspective and adding a specific perspective and who you notice in the mix. But I think, you know, other examples of that, I think, you know, to me, like a quintessential best supporting actress. Uh, and I, I don't think she won. I think maybe she was nominated, but it was Maureen Stapleton in Interiors, the really heavy Woody Allen movie. Uh, there's something about her character and her presence in that movie and the way that she's, you know, dressed in red while everyone else is in these like drab muted tones. Uh, and just like the, the, the energy that she is um, carrying in that movie just feels to me so quintessential best supporting actress. And so I think that's very similar to Cheetah in, in this scene in particular. 
So as you may know, my boyfriend John and I have been watching Broadchurch. We we did an episode together, Fun Mom Broadchurch. Uh, and so we have been plowing through it. It's, I mean, each season is six episodes, or I guess it would technically be called a series, is six episodes, or eight episodes, excuse me. So super easy to fly through. And like once you get, once you get sucked in, I mean, I don't know, it's... It's heavy, but you have to see what's going to happen next. It's not like we've been talking about watching Six Feet Under, which I've seen before. And from my experience, is the kind of show that you can do max about two episodes at a time. And then you really need to like step away. Broadchurch, I think I could probably do like three to four at a clip if I was really like if I had like a meal and, you know, and a few hours. So uh, we finished season two. We have just started season three, which really goes in a different direction but I assume kind of brings things back around so I will say this up front quite obviously as as I said last week when I talked about Broadchurch this is mildly spoilery it's all about season two so uh it's it's going to talk about who the killer was in season one and what happens at the end of season two so this next section is fairly spoilerly spoilery but um anyway here it goes Update from the last episode where I was talking about Charlotte Rampling and whether or not I thought she was good in Broadchurch. I think that her performance improves to kind of like a, a, a B, like a B plus at points. But there are just certain line readings that are so wooden. And I, I don't really know why. Like, I don't really understand how the direction of everyone else could be so strong and how Charlotte Rampling, who's like an incredibly talented actress, could be hitting so many wrong notes. Like, what am I, what's not working? Why is, why is this happening? Like, all the ingredients are there. But it, it's not like this profound distraction. Um, I thought that, I think I had said the last episode, oh, that Phoebe Waller-Bridge plays a very different character in this that she does from Fleabag. I take that back. She actually, she actually plays a pretty terrible character. Um, I think she's probably one of the more villainous ones in a way. Uh, I will say that the... The trial was certainly shocking. Um, I thought the the concepts that I felt they were really exploring of the ways that the truth can be manipulated and the way that the legal system can be manipulated to basically revise history, um, they really follow that through. And that was, uh, that was very shocking and very interesting and very frustrating, of course. Um, I will say at the same time that the entire Sandbrook murder subplot with Lee and Claire... I really didn't need it. I think that was probably the weakest part of season two. I found the two of them to be such distractions and like just constantly brooding. I found Claire's whole thing of like, oh, I can't resist him. It was just so, it was just so melodramatic. And I accept a level of melodrama in Broadchurch. There is a, the, the soundtrack alone is melodrama. And I'm like so here for it. I'm so here for it. The last time I talked about Broadchurch last week, I was only a few episodes into season two, so I had not gotten to what is probably, I'm assuming most people agree, probably the best scene of season two, 
series two, whatever you want to call it, is when Ellie, played by the incomparable Olivia Coleman, confronts Tom in the courtroom uh, lobby after he lies under oath in order to try to protect his father and, you know, potentially puts Mark Latimer in some really hot water. This scene, I, uh, Ian, I think, tweeted, one, you know, a, a lovely listener of, of this podcast had tweeted that there was some moment in season two that um, was e- equally had gooped him as, you know, the scene in season one in the last episode when Ellie, you know, stomps the shit out of Joe. But and I'm wondering if it's this scene, because, I mean, she has a lot of great moments in season two. But this to me is just like I've watched it so many times. And of course, you know, it's best to see it. It's on Netflix. It's you can get it on Amazon Prime. It's so accessible. You need to be watching Broadchurch. But if in case you're curious um, and you just want to know what I'm talking about, here is the audio. This is like 30 seconds of give this woman every award. Just hang on for one minute. Now, Elle, before you say anything... I don't want to talk to you. Sit down. Sit down! Do you see what you put Mark and Beth through? He wouldn't be up there if it wasn't for you. I know you want to protect your father, but he is a murderer and a shit, and he deserves none of your feelings for him. Look what you ended up doing! You lied on oath in a court of law, and I hope you're ashamed. Are you? Are you? Yes, yes. Right, well, you are coming home with me tonight and we are going back to the house. No, we're not. Yes, we are, because I am your bloody mother! And if I have to drag you kicking and screaming, I will! Your father has done enough damage and I will not let him destroy us too! Do you understand? Yes, Mum. Right, good. There's so many nuances in this that I love. the tiniest one is when she she says, "Look what you've done!" Like she has that the the sort of note she hits on that. There's sort of this this sense of distress in there that makes a difference. You know, if it wasn't there, the line wouldn't be as strong. Look what you've done! Like I just ah. There's also, and I call it her Queen Anne voice because it makes me think of the favorite. But when she she gets kind of shrill and it's like when she asks Tom if he's ashamed well are you like when she goes to that second level you lied on oath in a court of law and I hope you're ashamed are you are you I love that I love when Olivia Coleman goes there she has I I, I could really do a whole episode of all the things I've seen Olivia Coleman do and trying to categorize like oh this is like you know you know, this this thing that she does. This is when she goes into, like, the Olivia Coleman chest voice, you know what I mean? Or the Olivia Coleman head voice. There, I think I'll do a whole series. It'd be, like, Cherishing Olivia, <laughs> where we just explore Olivia Coleman and her vast career, which I at this point, I'm going to just have to watch everything. Um, I also really love in this scene, I think the best thing about this scene, I mean, Let's not go any further without the line, I'm your bloody mother. Right, well, you are coming home with me tonight and we are going back to the house. No, we're not. Yes, I... we are, because I am your bloody mother! Because you know my feelings on women at a 27 yelling about how they're someone's mother, lest you forget Tony Collette in Hereditary. Don't you swear at me, you little shit! Don't you ever raise your voice at me! I am your mother! And so I really just need to find one more uh, of a woman screaming, I'm your mother, and then I can do a whole episode about it and just talk about these three clips. So, um, yeah, so that I love. And then I think, really, the, the, 
the, the part that like gives me the shivers every time I watch it is after she, you know, drills it into Tom that like, you know, do you understand? Like, you know, your father did this and, and I'm, you know, this has all gone to shit and I'm not going to lose you. And she says, do you understand? And then of course, you know, he starts to break and says, yes, mom. And then she breaks and there's that like shivery, like <gasps> kind of thing. And uh, she goes, right. Okay. You know, whatever that is, that, that sort of, that, <laughs> that very British, right. Okay. Yes. Your father has done enough damage and I will not let him destroy us too. Do you understand? Yes, Mum. I love all those little. She does this a lot in the first episode of season three, but it's not as emotional. But the way that she interacts with um, the new character who gets introduced in season three, there's a lot of these little like, um, right, yes, all right, okay, there you go. Like lots of those that um, make a difference. It, they're all these like, it's all this texture in the dialogue that she's adding. And that moment when she like shiver sobs through like, you know, basically like this, this exorcism of rage. Cause I really think in that moment, to be honest, Ellie has like reclaimed her life so much in the first half of season two, I think is her life has just been taken away from her and Beth has turned on her and Tom has turned on her. And, you know, obviously Joe is not, uh, <laughs> is, is turned from her and then some, uh, he has spiraled from her. And so she's, just like so lost in the first few episodes and I think this like reclamation of some sense of self this reclama reclamation of her of, of being a mother of Tom you know I think that's it's a really fascinating story of her recovery is that she she's not comforted to recovery she's kind of you know the pressure creates the diamond I don't know maybe it's just like seeing Tom lie on on you know in court and seeing like the destruction that he was creating in Mark and Beth's lives and it's like your father has created enough destruction in their lives you're not going to add to it you're not going to follow in his footsteps and I think that's really fascinating I think they kind of were exploring that in Big Little Lies in season two of like Nicole Kidman and you know not wanting her son to turn into her father into his father of course I haven't finished Big Little Lies yet so I feel like there's more nuances to clean out on. I think there's some moments with Meryl in the last scene or two, another courtroom situation. So I'll get to that soon. I probably should have watched those scenes and then I could have compared them to these scenes because it's all courtroom drama. But uh, so um, anyway, uh, that scene, I just, I fucking love. I'm so into, I'm so enjoying Broadchurch. I think Marco's chewing a cable right now because the baby in my apartment building down the hall is screaming and Marco is chewing a cord. I must be recording a podcast. But thanks to the power of editing, it is now, well, you actually have no idea, but it is like weeks later since I recorded everything you've just listened to. It's been long enough to say that I needed to edit a little part where I said, well, I've just started watching season three of Broadchurch because I've long since finished season three of Broadchurch. And trust and believe there will be another episode dedicated to my favorite scene in season three. Uh, I don't want to spoil it. I would love to hear if you've watched Broadchurch, if you are a Broadchurch goer, I would love to know what your favorite scenes or moments are from season three, and maybe the stars will align. But overall, great series. Anyway, we will talk more about that probably next week or in the next couple weeks or, you know, next couple episodes, whatever. Let's, let's shift gears. Let's talk about Fosse Verdon. Let's talk about Cheetah in the Middle. 
So this is from episode seven, which I think probably mentioned earlier in this episode, which of course, as I just said, I recorded weeks ago. So um, it really is, I think, probably the best episode of the whole series, this is the episode nowadays. And I really actually think this scene is probably the best scene in the whole show. Uh, and this is, of course, when Gwen Verdon is presenting the song nowadays to Bob Fosse to be considered as the final number in Chicago. And the iceberg of implications underneath all of that. I feel like it's almost criminal if I don't focus on Michelle Williams uh, when talking about this scene. Because she is, I mean, I don't know uh, at what point you're listening to this, but at the point at which I'm recording it, uh, the Emmys have not been... She has not been given her Emmy yet, is basically what I'm trying to say. So God willing, she's won the Emmy at this point that you're listening, or she's going to, or whatever. But uh, it really is, I think, her best scene. I, do you agree, disagree? I really think it is. I think she kind of gets to display every single thing. She gets to sing. She gets to sing through tears. She gets to have monologues. She gets to have little face journeys. she's she's doing this is her real this is her moment this is where it's like okay for your consideration michelle williams here's the nowadays scene (laughs) you know but you know and obviously we're going to highlight it because everything that michelle is doing michelle you know first name basis shelly everything she's doing in this scene and and i guess really uh sam rockwell as well everything they're doing that's the guiding energy of the scene but what we're focusing on is Cheetah Rivera, who the or, you know the 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 character of Cheetah, the actress's name is Bianca Marroquin, and God knows if I said that correctly, but I think that was a really good effort. Apparently, she's played Roxy in Chicago like you know a million times, and so it's kind of cool. Like I think that's sort of consistent with Fosse Verdon, where I think if you're a fan of theater, there's all these like Easter eggs in there for you to find, I guess. So she is, she's in, I, I would say, probably three or four episodes of the series, and she's great. I, I've never been, like, super familiar with Cheetah Rivera to the point where I could watch this and go, oh, yeah, she's getting all the Cheetah nuances. But it it all works. She feels like a, like a fully realized character, a fully realized person who is also kind of lives at a lives at a 17, and it's like, okay, well, that's, she's probably, that that's probably accurate. I'm going to assume that. Um, for a point of comparison, I I think she was only in one episode, but whoever played Liza Minnelli, and again, I'm also not like a, I'm not, I'm not the Liza police, I'm not the police with a Z, you know, but it didn't read to me as authentic. It didn't even read to me as anything other than like a Liza haircut and then, you know, just kind of a, this is the way I learned to speak in acting school, you know? So anyway, I'm not here to rag on here on her. I'm here to celebrate Cheetah. So to set up the scene, it looks like they're like in the lobby of a theater and Kander and Eb are there and Gwen is there with her accompanist. I think his name is Danny. And they're all kind of in one corner of, of, the, of the theater, of the room, of the set of all of this. And then on the other side, up a couple steps, kind of laying on the floor, sort of, I would say Cleopatra style is what I would describe this, is Bob Fosse lighting a cigarette, fiddling with some matches, there's really this body language of like, okay, go ahead and show me what you got, but I'm not sitting on the edge of my seat. I'm not even sitting at all. In the meantime, 
kind of sitting on the edge of her seat, maybe like a step down on these little stairs is Cheetah Rivera. And so she's sitting there already positioned between them. But like really this first part of the scene, and I think this is totally fair, is all about Michelle Williams. It's all about Gwen presenting nowadays to Bobby. And I, what I love about this is, is just this constant air of vulnerability, you know, and I think anyone who's created something who's a writer or a, uh, an actor or a painter or a podcaster, there's, there's a lot of vulnerability that comes with kind of presenting something for the first time to someone and then having to look, look up and say, okay, so uh, what do you think? And I think the anticipation that builds up as she's singing this the first time really kind of drives that, that vulnerability and that nervousness home. that I really love are I think it's it's when Gwen sings even mess around with Ike and then Cheetah laughs I, I it's one of those things actually it wasn't until really this last time watching it now talking about it where I I realized that which is a great inclusion uh, and then at the end of the song Michelle Williams does this amazing thing where she puts two like closed tight little fists up against her mouth and it's that it's that body language of like it reminds me of Alexis, I guess, from Schitt's Creek. It's that sort of cute nervousness. Uh, but it's very endearing. And then as the song ends and we get this big laugh from Cheetah and, and that, <laughs> I don't know, this felt like so, it, it felt right. I feel like if she was playing anybody else, if she wasn't playing Cheetah Rivera, this might feel a little too big. But Cheetah saying, well, now we've got a closing fucking number. Like it's... <laughs> No, it's so um, it's so over the top, but I think that's probably exactly how you're supposed to play Cheetah. So I love it. And so there's lots of excitement then in this next moment. And I mean, we're all seeing it really from that side of the room. We're almost all seeing it from Bob's point of view of, of everybody just, you know, feeling their oats about this moment. And inevitably, it all has to turn to Bob and it all has to turn to that what do you think moment. And Cheetah's enthusiasm, the way she kind of sits on the stairs and watches, whether she, she has this great position, this great body language where she's sitting there just with her hands on her knees. And it later just feels really powerful. And we'll talk about when it gets there. But 
her enthusiasm. There's this one shot where she's watching Gwen laughing and hugging Candor and Ebb, and she's genuinely excited about all of this. And then behind her is Bob just, you know, laying there like a, you know, like he's in a Whiskas commercial, you know, or a Sheba commercial. He's just one of those cats that just can't be bothered and wants wet food and has this cup of coffee. And there's just, there's no, there's no real reaction, certainly in comparison to everybody else. And in that shot, Cheetah is a really interesting juxtaposition of her genuine response. And I guess really his genuine response, but that it's, not the same note. What I love about this moment is that it really is Cheetah cueing the tonal tide change here because she turns and she looks at Bob and she sees that he's not really reacting. And what we're actually seeing is her then looking back at Gwen and Kendra and Ebb and seeing this like knowing sadness on her face, this knowing disappointment. She's she's seen Bob not be impressed before. And I love the fact that Cheetah knows before Gwen does that this is not going to go well. I think that's one of those things that I love about when a when a scene or a, anything, any moment is given more to the supporting character than the main character. I think it fleshes out the story and it creates so much more depth that we're not just experiencing Gwen's experience of this, but Cheetah's as well. Let's hear it again from the top. How well, do you like it or not? <laughs> I want to hear it again. I really love that little, well, you, well, do you like it or not? And that, that nervous laugh in there that Michelle Williams does and the body language, the way she's sort of playing with the button on her, on that amazing pantsuit on her shirt. But what I, you know, we're really, we're really talking about Cheetah here is that Cheetah kind of turns and she, she gives this expression to Bob, like, come on, Bob, like, you know, as if she's saying, come on, you silly goose, give us an answer. It's, uh, I just, I, how many times can I say this? I just love that Cheetah gets her own little series of reactions and emotional notes to hit in this moment that's really so much more about Bob and Gwen. Now, this next part where Bob asks for Gwen to sing it again, this is really, this is Michelle Williams' moment to win every award they can give her. And I stand by that and I will celebrate that and we'll point out some amazing nuances here. But if we're going to see what Cheetah's doing at the same time, I, watching the scene again, watch, watch, watch what she does with her hands. Like her hand placement tells you something. I think when Bob asks Gwen and uh, Danny to, to do the song again, uh, Cheetah kind of sits up a little bit. And it's such a micro moment. It is the most micro of micro moments, but there is this sense of, Oh, wow, Bob's serious. Uh, if I were to compare it to anything else that I've seen that I've talked about here on, on in the details, uh, it's reminiscent of if you listen to the, or if you've seen, but I did an episode on Barbara Harris and her incredible uh, Best Supporting Actress nominated scene in Who is Harry Kellerman and Why Is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me? She has this moment where she does something very similar. And you should go listen to that episode. You don't even really need to see the movie, but... When, if uh, I don't want to get derailed on Barbara Harris right now because we'll, we'll never get back on track. But it's a very similar posture, like choice to sit up straight like, oh, okay, you're serious. And I think in terms of acting choices, that's a really economic and powerful choice uh, that I loved. It's kind of catching you miss it with Cheetah because then we, we go into this devastating moment where Gwen has to sing the song again. And it it is... It's just genius acting. It's genius performing. It is so hard to do what she's doing in this scene. And I'm just, I'm, I'm wildly impressed. 
It's good, isn't it grand? Isn't it great? Brian, please, I can't, I can't hear you. Fun, isn't it? <clears throat> Keep going. Nowadays, <clears throat> there's men everywhere, jazz everywhere, moves everywhere, life everywhere, joy everywhere. Okay, got it, got it. I think one of the things that's so impressive about this is that she has to as she's continuing to sing the song again and struggle through the song, there's all these little stories in, in her eyes and in the way that she, uh, her voice gets caught in her throat and in her body language. There's, there's this frustration. There's this feeling of like, why are you making me do this again? Why are you making me do this at all? Like, why is this happening? And I think she's, she's holding this tension and at the same time has to perform the song. But fail at it so she has to figure out how to authentically fail at it when she could kill it you know what I mean and I think that's really interesting it's beyond just like someone who's a good singer pretending to be a bad singer it's kind of like I don't know it's someone who's just this genius artist and then they're like okay let me see what it would look like if I broke my hand and tried to paint you know and we'll just use my imagination and I think that's kind of what she did here but then of course then then Bob suggests, you know, that it should be a duet and that they should get cheated in on the song. And and I this is of course then becomes really I guess a bit of Cheetah's moment in the scene. No, it's a good song. Um let's do it again. This time let's have Gwen and Cheetah switch off verses. Gwen, you take the first one, Cheetah, you take the next, and they do the last section together. Bobby, the this is Roxy's song. I mean, it's it's Gwen's song. Yeah, I think we should hear you do it together. Danny? We wrote the song for Roxy, Bobby. It, it, it's her show, and no, she, actually, she's earned the right to finish it. John, it's, it's not her show, it's their show. Uh, it's a good song, could be a good ending. Just give her the song, Bobby. I'd really like to listen to you do it together, Velma and Roxy. Let's see if it works. This is ridiculous. I think the way that it shifts to then focusing on Cheetah, then she becomes the central focus for a moment. I think that's, it's sort of like perfect, un, a perfect ensemble moment, you know? And we get to zoom in on the tension that she feels about this. I think there's something really meaningful about the fact that she says, you know, Bobby, come on, this is, uh, this is Roxy's song. This is, this is Gwen's song. And, that that's really what means something to her. It's not so much, oh, the character, this should be Roxy's moment. It's this recognition that this is Roxy's song. This is kind of her show and that it's Gwen's show, you know? And so then, you know, Bob, what, what I think is very interesting about how uh, Sam Rockwell is playing Bob Fosse in the scene is he's just, he's not, he's not getting stirred by any of this. He's not changing his tone. He's not raising his voice. And this is like, I think this is a very important energy to play in this whole scene, uh, certainly towards the end with what happens with, you know, when Gwen just goes off on him in the end, but he's just being very measured about it. And I like when he, when he hears what she's saying, he's like, well, no, it's actually not her show. It's their show. 
and you know I want to hear both and there's sort of a disappointment in Cheetah's eyes that she couldn't appeal to him but then I think maybe one of my favorite moments is then when she looks back at him and she's just like come on just like we just give her the song like there's just this micro moment between Bob and Cheetah and I like and it's it's informed like the, she's she's saying all of this with the sense of like I know the dynamic I know what I'm in the middle of right now and there's that great moment where she says this is ridiculous and kind of gives up and then of course I mean so much of what Cheetah does in the scene is is classic like child of divorce moments where she's then in between a fight between Gwen and Bobby. And I'm saying it'd be better for the show if the two of them- Better for the show? Oh. Oh, really? (laughs) Better for the show, huh? Is that really what you think? Yeah. I'll tell you what would have been better for the show. Opening four months ago with a director who wasn't hell-bent on turning it into two hours of misery for the audience. This is actually probably, maybe potentially my favorite moment, is while Gwen is saying that, look at Sheeta, look at the way she's sitting there with her hands on her knees and she's staring straight ahead. It's so smart. It's so, it's such a great choice. It's so paralyzed with the fear of, of what's about to happen. It's just perfect. She's, she's, ugh. I can't think of a better choice an actor could have made <laughs> in that moment. Hey, I, I, didn't, I didn't ask to do this show. Oh, no, 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 of course not. No, no, this is all one big favor you're doing for us, for all of us. It's just a big favor. Daddy, can we take it from the top? Just like my saving your life was a favor. And not letting them replace you was a favor. Daddy. And not losing a single cast member. And then there's the biggest favor of all, which is your entire fucking career. I mean, this whole moment is really more Michelle. It's so much more about Gwen, and that's fair. That that part where she says, "Oh yeah, you're all just doing us one big favor," and she kind of puts her arms or like her hands on on either Candor or Ebb, as that sense of like, "Oh, you know, you just, you know, you did us all, you know, collectively, this group of us, you did this all this favor favor of you know doing this show for us." And I think there, like, look at that the acting choice or that that piece of movement like inform that line so much more and maybe like I don't know you know what I mean like when you do something it kind of uh infuses the the tone or the vibe you're trying to reach it's like a you know using a certain prop to to access a character I kind of feel like a lot of her body language and a lot of her choices in this monologue we're all kind of bolstering the words and we're kind of helping fuel the the resentment underneath by kind of performing little things like that does that make sense uh of course, you know, the best, my favorite part where we had to just stop is is just that part where she says, your whole fucking career. Like, it's just, I don't know. I, 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 I love that Michelle Williams, I'm not saying she goes to a 27 in the scene, but she goes to like an 18. And I, I think she's earned it. You know, there's, there, there's a couple other peaky moments in Fosse Verdon, but I think this is really the most sustained. I could have said no when Hal wanted you for damn Yankees. And I could have said no when you wanted to direct Redhead. I could have let you stay a failed, bald dancer. A wannabe Fred Astaire. But I picked you up on my back. And I carried you. 
through Charon, through Cabaret. I've been carrying you the whole goddamn time, and you have never forgiven me for it. But you know damn well if I get this song, it'll be my show and not yours, and you can't stand the thought of it, can you? You just can't stand the fact that I'm the star, not you. You know, there's a little nuance in there where she says, I carried you through charity. And it's that thing that theater people do where they, there's a lot of show titles where they just say, like, instead of they saying Fiddler on, Fiddler on the Roof, they just call it Fiddler. Um, trying to think, like, how to succeed in business without really trying is just how to succeed. Of course, it's like, that's a really long title. So, of course, you'd say that. Um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm blanking on others, but you know what I mean? Where it's like, there's that shorthand. It's that kind of, um, I like, this is kind of a silly example, but I don't think people say the King and I, they just go King and I, King and I, um, <laughs> which is like, why just say the, the, so I appreciate that nuance. nuance. I also really liked talking about throwbacks to reminiscent acting choices at the end of this little monologue. She does this sneer that's so reminiscent of Tony Collette and Hereditary in the dinner room, the, the dinner table sequence after she, you know, has that infamous, uh, nobody takes responsibility for anything. And then she's just like fuming and Gabriel Burns like telling her to like, let it go, just stop. And she's sitting there with this, this awful, like teenager kind of sneer, that, that face on her face. And uh, this is very, very similar. And again, it is an acting choice that cannot work. It could potentially not work. In some cases, it might not. In some actors, it might not. And I don't know what the way to make it work is the the uh explanations i've seen from both this scene and tony collette and hereditary is just commitment it's just like if you're gonna do this then this needs to be uh fully lived in don't just like make a sneer as like a big acting choice like be the sneer be the sneer well i can see you taking this very personally glenn but the fact of the matter is it really might be better as a duet we can't know that until we uh, give it a try. I say, we give it a listen, see how it feels. Danny? One call from me and you're gone from the show. You're gone. Gone. And talk about like making really great acting choices uh sam rockwell his body language the way that he measures out the timing of his lines in response to all of this is really really genius because it it's devastating in a sort of like it's like he's doing emotional judo he's just like knocking around with just using one pinky you know and i i think the way that he sits there kind of with his with his chin in his hand and the cigarette between his lips and says, you know, we won't know that until we've tried it. And, you know, what sucks about all this is, like, he's not wrong. Like, what he's saying, I can I can see, okay, maybe maybe this has been the intention all along. Like, I wish he wasn't being so nebulous about it. And, and he probably is being kind of uh, difficult on purpose. But I also see the director side where he's just like, okay, well, if we're going to do the show and you're going to add the song in and I have this idea as the director of the show, I want to see it. And 
this needs to be less about being Gwen's song and really about whether it should be Roxy's or Roxy and uh, Velma's song. And I think that's uh, it's an interesting balance that you're almost like, oh, wow, he didn't he didn't insult her. He didn't undermine her what she was saying directly. He just kind of resumed past it as if it was some like rest stop he wasn't interested at you know stopping at you know and then of course i mean i think the way michelle williams just like glides and the way that she turns to get her her little coin purse it's there's just there's no there's no pausing and she turns and you can feel her finding the dime in the purse as the words are about to come out and i i just i love that like one call from me bobby one like it just like the, the struggle of getting the one out mm, i love it i just this is where she's yeah i i i think this is where it's more powerful that she's that she's whispering than yelling you know but as the scene ends i am so happy to see we get one last glance of cheetah she's in this the last shot she's over gwen's left shoulder sitting there just looking devastated i mean i again the fact that there is emotional texture to what's going on with her and she's not just watching is really meaningful and of course then bob is kind of on the other side of gwen and and sort of behind cheetah so again we're we're really getting this third story and i guess as a point of comparison we don't get this focus on candor and ebb you know we don't see the same emotional resonance and they have some lines in the scene and they have you know some uh you know uh, they, they have some money on this fight. You know what I mean? And yet I love that whatever conflicts or feelings or any you know involvement in this they have is not the focus. And yet there is still room for it to be about Cheetah, even though, as I've said, it's pretty much all about really Gwen and Bobby at this moment. So, I, you know, I think, I think in terms of crafting a scene and the fact that we they, they they closed the loop of letting us see Cheetah one more time as the song was playing, like kind of, it's sort of symbolic that she's, you know, she's sort of looped in. She's, she's a part of this fight. She's a part of the song now, you know? Ladies and gentlemen, the Vickers Theater, Chicago's finest home of family entertainment, is proud to announce a first. The first time anywhere there's been an act of this nature. Not only one little lady, but two. You've read about them in the papers, and now here they are, Chicago's own killer dealers, those two scintillating sinners, Roxy Hart and Velma Kelly. This, I mean, Fosse Verdon is incredible. The whole thing is incredible. This is probably the best scene, but I, uh, I'm open to hearing other people's thoughts and what they loved about Fosse Verdon. Uh, I mean, I have to watch it again. I feel like it's just so... It's so rich with with stuff. I will say, if I if I'll say anything about it, um, the last episode feels a little rushed in terms of trying to squeeze a lot of story in. But that's the great thing about in the details is we're just focusing on one scene. So if like the rest of it doesn't work, BFD. Uh, anyway, uh, I think that's all I have to say about Cheetah in the middle. I think that's actually all I have to say this episode completely. But what do you have to say? Uh, that's what I want to know. And the best way to find out is if you email me at inthedetailspod at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter and you can tweet at me and you can message me at Colin Drucker. You can follow me on Instagram at Colin Drucker underscore. You get lots of pictures of my cat Marco. Uh, and uh, of course, you can get more of me on All Right Mary as well, where we have just kicked off our recap of Dracula, if you're into that. So um, anyway, I think... 
think, I don't know what next week is, but I know that it's going to be good. So let that be a deep tease. I have lots of ideas and I just can't, I'm too much of an Aquarius to settle on one. So um, let's find out together. And uh, yeah, I think that's all I got for you. So thank you for joining me uh, for another celebration of all of the acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutiae that make a scene great on In the Details. So yeah.